With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everybody knows I've had points where I've lost everything. I've had to switch entire careers. And doing that is a lonely and scary feeling, no matter which way you're trying to reinvent yourself. So reinvent yourself, the book, I wrote this book just for people like me who really wanted to learn how to switch careers, not just once or twice, but I've had to do it probably 10 times. Reinvent yourself is all about taking action, no matter where you are starting from. And in this book, I disclose how I, and also I tell dozens of stories of other people, how we've turned our lives around and how I know you can too, no matter where you're starting from, because I've started from the bottom. Whether you want to supplement your income with a little extra cash or replace your job, or even if you're looking for a way to fund your retirement or, or just simply your interests have changed and now you have to start from scratch in a new area of life, the book Reinvent Yourself will show you how. I've reserved a copy for anyone listening to this today that I'd like to ship to you for absolutely free. All you have to do is go to www.reinventbook.net. That's www.reinventbook.net. The tools are there. The opportunities are there. The gatekeepers are disappearing. It's possible to create the life you want. And I've talked to so many people about this, plus my own experience. So go to www.reinventbook.net right now. I'm excited about what this book can do for you. That's www.reinventbook.net. And I really appreciate any feedback as well on this. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I was arrested as a child when I was 15 years old. The cops beat us so bad, they just kicked my... My brother and I, they kicked us in the groin over and over again. We were urinating blood for seven days. And that was just one of the many ways that just fortified us to understand that you can't sit back and talk about, woe is me. You have to say, why not me? Why can't I be the person to change things are? And that's my narrative. My narrative has always been that. So so some of these issues you brought up, and, I, I you know, there are a couple of, there's always issues where a city can improve, and you've identified them so much in many of your speeches, but just going to reel back a tiny second. 2000, I think it was 2006, you became a state senator. You finally decided, okay, I'm going to make the move. Was that, I'm just going to flat ass, was that boring for you? After you were, <laughs> you were a policeman, you were like, you know, fighting criminals like a superhero on the subway. You were making changes that were actually happening in the police force. And now you got to go up to Albany. And it seems like that just seems like a mess. Ugh, no business owner wakes up and says, boy, I can't wait to figure out what my sales taxes are today. It is time consuming. And I don't even know all the laws and regulations and so on. But thankfully, there's a company that does, companies Avalara, they simplify sales tax with real-time tax rate calculations, automatic return filing, 
They seamlessly integrate with your accounting, e-commerce, point-of-sale system, so it is totally easy. You do not even have to think about this anymore. And they have experts in 15 countries around the world to help as you grow. Learn more at avalara.com slash James. Avalara, tax compliance done right. So before I introduce this next guest who's uh who's become a, a good friend and he's a excellent human being and you'll see why uh i want to ask a question to the listeners if you were to take every borough of new york city so manhattan queens bronx brooklyn staten island and assume that they were not boroughs of a bigger city but assume that they were their own cities what would be the most populated cities in the united states so think about it for just a few seconds and I'll tell you, LA is still the most populated city in the United States. Uh, Chicago is the second most populated city in the New York in, in the United States, assuming again, all the boroughs are their own cities. And then Brooklyn <laughs> would be the third most populated city in the United States. So please welcome Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Good How's it going, Eric? Good to see you. Good to see you. I used to have hair that long. Yeah, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you're ageless, so you don't have to worry about it. You know, you you have this like white guy Afro thing going on. <laughs> no, well, people always say African Americans are ageless. Now we're being totally racist. <laughs> I, um, we're starting off the podcast immediately racist. You have a, you only have a sixty nine billion dollar GDP in Brooklyn, but we could talk about anything. And uh, uh, so so yeah, and I can add your. Not only are you running for mayor for the next mayoral race, which is in 2021, but you're, I don't know how you judge the front runner, but you're certainly in the lead in terms of fundraising, right? Yes, so, yes. Um, and I'm surprised, though, that uh, we'll talk about everything in your background in a second, but I'm just curious, like, do people fundraise this much in advance? Is it important for... Yes, yes. You know, really, the campaign for fiscal equity, they have a system that's in place. We have a matching fund system. Eight to one or six to one, and you could only start fundraising in uh, the year of the four-year span of the election cycle. The mayor's race is every four years, and so 2018 we started fundraising. And really, you have to start gearing up and meeting people long before that. It is, it's a very serious underca- undertaking to run for mayor. Well, it's interesting, also, if you just look at the numbers, <clears throat> you know, you. When you won for Brooklyn Borough President, you got almost 91% of the vote. That's mm-hmm. like incredible. That's like dictatorship type votes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you just take those votes and nobody else votes for you, you'd still win for mayor like with those kind of numbers, basically. Brooklyn is an interesting borough because, as you stated, it's the third largest city in America if it was a separate city. And at one time, it was a city unto its own until it incorporated with New York City, as well as Rockaway. Many people don't know that, but both Brooklyn and Rock- Rockaway became part of New York City at the same time. Oh, I didn't know Rockaway was separate from It Brooklyn. was separate at the, also. It used to be separate from Queens. Uh, they came together as well. But what's fascinating is if you look at the races that are happening, the attorney general, uh, Letitia James, came from Brooklyn. Jemani Williams, the public advocate, came from Brooklyn. Bill de Blasio came from Brooklyn. The volume of votes in Brooklyn is so large that it really uh, determines many of the races in this city uh, and now even in the state. I feel also Brooklyn's an interesting 
mean, it's almost a cliche to use the word melting pot, but there's, I was reading 200 different languages are spoken in Brooklyn. Like Brooklyn is so culturally diverse. And then you have on top of that, sort of the, the gentrification of the past 15 years, 20 years that's occurred, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit about because I think that's uh, transformed the landscape of Brooklyn somewhat and, and even of Manhattan because of that. So it's it's a very interesting yes, city, very, very diverse. 47% of Brooklynites speak a language other than English at home, according to the last census. Those numbers are far more than that because only 50% of the Brooklyn residents actually responded to the census. So our numbers are higher than even the 2.6 million people that uh. call Brooklyn home. <clears throat> but the the evolution of the borough and the stories of the borough and the connectivity of people who came from Brooklyn and their love affair of Brooklyn. I mean, people walk around no matter where you are on the globe, and when they hear that you're from Brooklyn, their ears perks up and they say, you know, wow, you know, my heart is in the borough of Brooklyn. There's something about, I don't know if it's the Brooklyn Dodgers or there's something that people romanticize about their days in Brooklyn and how it is. And so we get, we're get we getting a whole new uh, crop of young people who are experiencing Brooklyn and bringing their flavor and their energy to the borough. And it's growing, it's exciting, and it's, it's intimidating for longtime residents. But, you know, we welcome that. And it's about change, but you change in a welcoming way. Well, I think whenever people think of, let's say, the classic 1940s, 50s, 60s New Yorker, and they start kind of emulating the accent, what they're really emulating is a Brooklyn That's accent. That's right, a Brooklyn. The, the classic <laughs> New Yorker is a Brooklynite, That's actually. Right. <laughs> so, but let's let's reel it back. You, you were obviously born and raised in Brooklyn. Um, you know, where were... where. Where are you from? Com- combination. Uh, I grew up in uh, between Brooklyn and Queens. I lived in Brooklyn until I was seven years old. Uh, my mother, who's an amazing woman, uh, she uh, purchased a home in St. Albans, Queens. She's still there in the house, and the narrative around her home really says a lot. She uh, really was a cleaning woman. She used to clean and iron uh, clothing for people. My job, we used to have this old iron. You put it on the stove. My job, I was a tester to make sure the, st- the iron was hot enough not to scorch the shirts that she was ironing. Mm-hmm. And mommy bought a um, a home, and it was really amazing. I remember two parts of that narrative when we were in the walk-up tenement, and mom said that I'm going to move my children um, out of Brooklyn, Brownsville, 1218 Gates Avenue. We used to live down the block from Broadway. I thought it was the Broadway where Sammy Davis Jr. played mm-hmm. wrong, you know, <laughs> and so... Yeah. Uh, mom finally saved up enough back then. She bought a home. And when she went to the clothing, the closing, James, the attorney that she cleaned his house was the attorney for the bank. Wow. And he says, what are you doing here, Dorothy? She says, uh, this is my house. And after they did the clothing, closing, she went to his house. She cleaned up and he fired her. Why? He says, you know, how dare you think you're going to buy a house? And she said, you know, Eric, I went in the subway station and I just cried and I yelled out and I dried my eyes and I got on the train. I said, I have a house with six children. I have to make sure I have to do what I have to do to to keep it. Wow. So that's like, I mean, usually, okay. So he was just, he blatantly knew he was causing this person who has, you know, done well for him over the years. He blatantly knew he was causing incredible hardship for her. And yet... He just didn't want her 
moving into town? It, not even moving into town. It was I, I cannot explain what was his mindset, but it was just the depth of, you know, who do you think you are? And that is the hidden part of isms that our families went through, anti-Semitism, racism, uh, anti-Chineseism, you know, those isms aren't always in your face. And they don't really tell the narratives. You know, how many times uh, did, um, you know, people from Jewish descent was not allowed in certain colleges, were denied. People think that it was always they were allowed into Harvard or Yale. Uh, but the reality was that there was more than one way to close the door on just fairness. And mom just experienced that was just one of the many ways that it just fortified us to understand that you can't sit back and talk about woe is me. You have to say, why not me? Why can't I be the person to change things are? And that's my narrative. My narrative has always been that I was arrested as a child when I was 15 years old. The cops beat us so bad. They just kicked my uh, brother and I, they kicked us in the groin over and over again. We were urinating blood for seven days. So what, uh, what was happening? Like, so t tell me about that I was incident. just a bad kid. <laughs> so when I see bad kids nowadays, you know, I understand them, you know, you know. Like, as, what were you doing? I was just reckless and foolish and stupid, mm -hmm. you know. Um, one of my perfect examples of the Eric Adams. <laughs> there was a incident that happened on a, a bar that's called Dead Man Road where someone let off a shot inside the bar one day. So my friends and I, we went down to the bar the next day with a pack of firecrackers and we threw it in the bar and started running, you know, because we thought it was funny. Uh, this is what children do, yeah. you know? And so we always have to remember that. We, we get adult amnesia and we forget how dumb we were when we were growing up. So when I see young people doing things, I say, listen, let's not act like we were the perfect children when we were growing up. We were reckless. We were dumb. And that's what being a child is about. Well, it even goes down to the how the brain forms. Like the part of the brain that makes that helps you make rational decisions, that part doesn't finish growing until you're about 25, 30. Exactly. And so exactly. at 15, <clears throat> I, I think the, probably the evolutionary reason for it is you're, so, you're, you're probably encouraged to take risks and not think about it so you know what you can survive and, and not survive and, and so on. So there's, so yeah, true. kids are, are definitely... And they're supposed to, you know, I th some great philosophers stated the biggest problem of, of adults is that they grow up. Yeah. You know, we grow up, we become jaded, we change our outlook. We change, we change how we think. We stop dreaming, you know. So you, you don't lose your dreams because you get older. You get older because you abandon your dreams. And young people still have that energy. And that's why it's important to surround ourselves with young people with that energy so that we can continue to learn and grow. Yeah, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about that in a second, but it reminds me of, of one anecdote, which is um, I heard this statistic that the average kid laughs 300 times a day and the average adult laughs five times a day. It's, it's so true. And, you know, Dr. Dispenser, he talks about this in his book, uh, Changing the Habits of Being You. I think it's in his book, uh, You Are the Placebo. But if you really think about it, it was such a wake-up call for me. We, Our life is divided into being disappointed about the things that happen afraid of the things that are going to happen, and we're never living in the present. 
we are torn between these two places and we never really get in a moment. That's why I meditate every day and every night. It's about take the present, enjoy the present, start your day of embracing what it has to offer and the power of people just being present and being conscious in the moment. We don't. We're upset of what happened in our lives in the past. We're afraid of what right. is to come, that there's not a moment of when are you here if you're always there. And, you know, the interesting thing about meditation is that it's, and I think a lot of misconception is, oh, during that 15 minutes, half hour, hour that you're meditating, mm -hmm. there's something magical that happens. But it's more like what you're saying. It's really just practice so that later on in the day, when you do have the, the, the raging battles of every single day, you're able to remember that practice and, and you know, put yourself in the present so you could function better. So true. And, you know, I used to hear about PTSD, officers experiencing PTSD, and I was like, what is this they're talking about? Until after my health journey, and it took me not only healing myself physically, but also how do I start the process of going into the black hole of researching how do you heal yourself emotionally? And I realized that when I left policing, I was experiencing vicarious trauma. Every day, all day, I'm experiencing people that are in pain. You start to live through that. And so, in fact, I was experiencing PTSD. And meditation was a way to really heal that PTSD and allow me to just really go inside and do self-healing. We don't do that. Well, well, I, I want to I get to that, but I want to... With the when the police beat you when you were 15, and I assume there was no recourse, you couldn't complain about them, even though you and your brother were severely hurt. You know, everything's about choices. So you made a choice. Uh, you're going to go into the police, which is sort of an oh, these guys beat the hell out of me. <laughs> now I'm going to join them now. Right. Like, I'm just curious. First off, what choice did your brother make? That's that's a great question, and no one. Um ask that question. Uh, I believe today um, some of the trauma my brother's experiencing now is because he never healed from that. Uh, he's dealing with some serious um, issues around that. I think he has uh, undiagnosed bipolar. I think that uh, that was a sad moment for him and he never recovered. And it's amazing how two human beings can experience the same encounter and walk away with, with something different. Uh, I knew I was in pain and I wanted to turn my pain into purpose. And the, Did you consciously think that though then? I, 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 it was an opportunity. I was a computer programmer. That was my skill. And that is part of my journey and my evolution of, of, you know, how I dealt with, you know, the crime fighting tactics. But at that time, there was a shooting in our community by a young man named Randolph Evans, a housing police officer. When the police agencies were split into three, a housing police officer, for no reason, Randolph Evans walked up to the car and said, are you coming from my family's house? The cop took out his gun and shot him, mm -hmm. went to trial, and the officer was found not guilty. Mm -hmm. And this caused a great uproar in the African-American community in Brooklyn, and the leaders of the community approached uh, 13 of us uh, and told us they wanted us to go into the police department and change from within. And I was not trying to hear it at first. And they said, no, this is something you have to do. And I went into the transit police, later became the New York City Police Department. But when I got there, I had a mission, and I saw that this was a way 
for me to deal with the demasculation I felt. Imagine being a young man and, you know, kicked in the grind. You feel demasculated. And I was holding in all that anger. And when I got into the police department and I was able to go after those who I identified among the great men and women who police our city, but those numbers who are abusive, I was able to do something about it. And so that pain turned into purpose, and I was just a mission-driven individual. People like say, listen, guy, you out of your mind. You're attacking your employer. But I wasn't out of my mind. I was finding my mind. (laughs) Right, because you're trying to, again, the change from within makes a better machine overall yes. you wanted this to be an effective police force for new york city but so you get to you get into the police force this was 1984 right yes you get into the police force and was your i mean i would think my first instinct whether i wanted to or not would be find the officers who beat me up and <laughs> punish them <laughs> and did you did you try to seek them out or were you looking for kind of what was fractured in the system to begin with you know i'm not saying the system was bad or good i'm just saying there was like with any police system or any institution it's always evolving were you trying to fr- find what was fractured that you were familiar with and and try to improve it or were you trying to find individuals it it was so fascinating i did not the last thing on my mind was saying let me go find these two officers we, were, we it was a different city uh, it was during a time where there was a lot of abusive behavior uh, from the small number of bad cops. And I always want to emphasize that because sometimes our negative experiences, we make them believe that this is universal, and it's not. The number of men and women who patrol our streets are uh, real heroes and sheroes. But there was a serious number, and the police agencies in New York and across America, they became safe havens for those who were abusive because we were doing nothing to get rid of them. So I was on a mission of identifying those who were really taking down the profession and saying to our cities that we need to move these officers out of, out of this noble profession. But at the same time, we were, we were an unsafe city. We were having 2,000 homicides a year in this city, Uh, 98,000 robberies and almost almost an equal amount of felonious assaults. Uh, People were living like caged animals in their homes. And I had this skill of computer programming, and I was able to uh, link up with a man named Jack Maple. He he has now transitioned, and Bill Bratton. And we started this whole system of real-time crime fighting that, subsequently led to this being one of the safest big cities in America. And I was able to balance of protecting citizens, but at the same time making this police department a better place. Yeah, because I remember New York City in the 80s. I mean, now people even jokingly say it's like Disneyland, but (laughs) there were un... Brooklyn was horrible, right? In terms of violent crime like there was a lot of areas you you would be scared to walk in. but even manhattan like yes it, block by block you had to ch- even like 14th street which is now you know it's a garden there it was that was like the the worst and of course 42nd street was the worst and hell's kitchen was the worst there was the 30s were the worst avenue a was the worst there was no safe so true area right, really right, in, right. in the 70s was obvious because new york was banger but even in the 80s it wasn't until I would say mid to late nineties that Manhattan was starting to become this, this Disneyland. And then that kind of went over into Brooklyn as well. Right. And and literally and figuratively because um, 42nd street, which was a bastion of 
um, porno shop, porn shops and other uh, people went there for bad reasons. You go there now and you see Disney everywhere. Uh, you see families are enjoying. But many people grew up not knowing about this city like that. And they felt as though this was always New York. Williamsburg was always Williamsburg. Greenpoint was always Greenpoint. You can always walk through Central Park late at night. That was not the reality. I mean, we used to have these things called clubs. Uh, that wasn't a prestigious group. That was a device you put over your steering wheel to stop people from stealing your car. You know, we built industries around the fact we surrendered to the to the belief we could not be safe. And I talk about that all the time when I'm campaigning because people need to understand uh, that I don't want my son growing up in the city that I grew up in. We were divided. We were living in fear. Crime controlled us, and we surrendered. We no longer believed. And I want us to continue on this pathway of belief, and we have to do it in a very smart way. So what you describe when you get into the uh, when you get into the police force, obviously the first job is to be a policeman. So you, like you said, you, you worked on, um, developing this real time system with Bill Bratton to, to track crime. Were you also, uh, uh, you know, did you have a, a beat? Did you walk around and catch criminals? <laughs> yeah. I started out in the transit police department. Mm -hmm. I wrote the trains from eight at night to four in the morning alone. Transit police officers did not have partners. You were on a train by yourself. Which, by the way, again, was as scary as New York was above ground. <laughs> it was scarier underground. The transit, I was scared. The transit system was fear on steroids. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was very intimidating. I used to ride from Coney Island all the way through to Manhattan, uh, 34th Street. And from 8 at night to four in the morning, you know, you don't have the priest out during those hours. It was very uh, frightening and you just had to be smart. You had to know how to engage people. Radio didn't operate. How you, you got assistance is you would throw your nightstick on the platform. It makes a unique sound when it hits uh, the concrete and you will hope that one of the officers will hear it. And that was your call for uh, service or assistance. So what was the, like the most dangerous thing that happened during those times? Oh, man. <laughs> there, there's so many to choose for, you know, from uh, it was, one time I was on the Coney Island on Easter Day was one of the most dangerous days you could patrol the subway system. And there was a riot on the train while I'm pulling um, out of the going across the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge. The Manhattan Bridge had the train that went over, and there was a riot on the train. So even if I could get help, it wasn't coming until I got on the other side of the Manhattan. What does it even mean, a riot on the train? <laughs> <laughs> People were just fighting. They were coming from a party. It was late at night. It was about 2.30 in the morning. And they were coming from Coney Island and a lot of uh, drinks and a lot of alcohol and a lot of testosterone is flowing. And they were just on the train fighting all over the place. Someone pulls the emergency cord so the train is stuck on the bridge between stations. And it just so happens smart thinking transit cops realize that they heard the signal because I came out of the train state, out of the tunnel. So they heard me call over the air and they had to come through the stations on both sides to get to us. And it's, 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 it was intimidating. There was a lot of hairy times and moments 
when you're by yourself on that system. Again, you have to be smart. You have to really plan your execution to make sure that help is on the, on the way and that you're not doing something in between those stations when you lose your radio signal. I mean, were you scared every night? Uh, just about. <laughs> you know, just about. Because you knew, particularly Thursday, Fridays, and Saturday and Sunday, you knew it was going to be something was going to happen on the train during those times. Because remember, it wasn't during the day. It was 8 at night to 4 in the morning during the 80s. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a lot, you know. You know? <laughs> and, then, and then on top of this, you took it upon yourself to uh, basically add to your job description by saying, look, the police force as a whole, not only do I need to do my job and protect the city, but the police force as a whole needs to evolve and, you know, get out corruption, get out abuses of the system, and so on. How did you kind of elevate your status to be able to do that? Did you do that kind of on your own? Did, did, did you, were you, were you promoted to that or what was happening? I was still a, a I was a rookie cop. Mm -hmm. I had no idea I was going to last for 22 years. I mm -hmm. thought I would be there a year and they'd say, listen, get rid of this guy. This guy's a troublemaker. You know, I was a probationary officer where you could be fired at any time uh, for cause. Uh, but I was driven and the plan was not to stay there long. The plan was to go in there with the mission. The mission was find ways to make communities safe without being in disgrace. How do you turn this noble profession into what it ought to be? And we, I was with a member, each fraternal, fraternal group organization, every ethnic group has a fraternal organization. Uh, the Italians have the Colombian societies. Uh, the Hispanic officers, they would have the Hispanic societies. So they were all societies. For the African-American officers, it was the Guardian Society. And I became the chairman of the Grand Council of all the Guardian organizations. As a rookie? In the, my second year second in the police year. department. And I became the chairman. And it was a coalition of all of the African-American law enforcement agencies in the city, Department of Correction, courts. How would you become chairman of this? I mean, I'm, I'm, what I'm hitting at is... <laughs> What qualities in you said, okay, I've been doing this two years. There's people here who have been doing it for maybe 20, 30. I'm going to lead them. Just driven. Mm -hmm. You know, some came into the department as a career to make sure they were able to pay their mortgage. Some came in because it was a way of getting a steady uh, paycheck. Some came in with the desire of making people safe. People come in for different reasons. I came in with a driven purpose. I had an assignment. I was living up to it, and I knew I could not do it if I just uh, maintained a patrol mindset. And it was probably just driven to the passion of making our city safe and, again, um, not having people be in disgrace. And how did you build, you know, as you were rising up, like as you became the chairman of this, how did you build kind of consensus among the other members that, okay, I'm the right choice to do this? For you, like so, like you say, they some of the people didn't want maybe the extra work. They wanted to get the they had their families. They're paying the mortgage. You were young, um, so so I get that part. But other people maybe were were probably a little distrustful or like, oh, what is this? This kid's gonna break a system that we're we're already paying our mortgage with. We don't want right. to do too much other damage. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question <laughs> because people who are oppressed are really concerned if someone comes in and do away with even what they have, you know? So they were, they, they, we had a body of people who was saying, you're going to make it difficult for us. 
But there was also a substantial number of people who started to say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm getting these calls that my son is being arrested, arrested. My cousin is being arrested. They started to see that although we were part of the police department, the manner in which we were policing in the city was impacting our family members as well. It was impacting our family members because they were becoming victims of crimes, but it also was impacting our family members because they were being a victim of overaggressive policing. And so coming in with that mission, and I've learned that people can see if you authentically care. There's one thing if you're trying to do it for some reason, but people started to see my passion and my concern, and they started to support me and become part of this movement of making our city a safe place where people can raise healthy children and families. Did you have a sense already of solutions towards you know building consensus and coalitions beyond the guardians to the other kind of uh, demographics of the police force? Yes, which which when you talk to many people in policing, although I was extremely critical. Um, all of the major unions would tell you uh, that Eric was a person that you could sit down and communicate with, and he wanted to be a solution-oriented and focus on that. All of my, as I moved up through the ranks to a sergeant, a lieutenant, and a captain, all of my uh, officers would tell you that, you know, he was an amazing boss. He was an amazing supervisor that um, really understood the concept that I even share today, families first. I, you put your family in front of whatever you do. And people saw that, that I knew that people matter, and they, they saw how much I knew that they matter. I was always concerned about the individual. If you make a whole individual, you are going to have an, a whole agency, and that is how we should move forward. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. As a small business owner, you already have a lot, even too much on your plate. The last thing you need to worry about is your bank. That's why Axos Bank provides simple, convenient, and hassle-free banking that business owners like you deserve. Axos AXOS is so confident in their basic business checking account, they'll give you $50 to try it out. Just use promo code JAMES and visit Axos, A-X-O-S, axosbank.com slash JAMES today to get started. Axos is 100% digital with much lower overhead costs than traditional banks. So they pass those savings on to their customers. That's why they're able to do this. This means no maintenance fees, no minimum balance requirements, unlimited domestic ATM fee reimbursements, your first 50 checks for free, and up to 200 free transactions per month on their basic business checking account. Axos lets you access your money anytime, anywhere. Their time-saving digital tools allow you to check your accounts make deposits, and pay bills wherever you are. Stay ahead of the challenges of modern business with a bank that works for you. Visit axosbank.com slash James to learn more and get your $50. Axos Bank, small business banking simplified. You know, I've always wondered about this, but now I know the answer. What actually makes a better toothbrush? Is it industrial strength power, multiple modes? Look, I've even asked a dentist and they'll tell you it's less about the brush and more about how you use it. That's why you need Quip, Q-U-I-P. Quip's sensitive vibrations with a built-in timer guide gentle brushing for the dentist-recommended two minutes. The 30-second pulses ensure an even clean. 
And Quip automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months for clean new bristles right on schedule. The sleek, intuitive design is simple to use and comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount as well. Simply put, Quip makes brushing something you actually want to do twice a day, and good habits really do matter to live a healthier life. For me, I probably wouldn't brush two times a day if I didn't use something like Quip. It's an excellent toothbrush. I've never seen anything like it. And I highly recommend at least trying it out. And they start at just $25. You'll get your first refill free at getquip.com slash James. Getquip.com slash James. This is a simple way to support our show and start brushing better. But you have to go to getquip, Q-U-I-P, getquip.com slash James to get your first refill for free. You could have just kept your head down, been a patrolman, uh, did your job, but you kind of doubled your workload, but it kind of built you this network throughout the city and you started to have impact. And I get the sense that early on, you probably felt like you could take this even further. And, you know, you know, like for instance, in 1994, you ran for Congress, right? right. So, so obviously you were, you were young then it didn't work out. Uh, I don't know how much you want to, maybe you have more PTSD about that election. <laughs> than, please, but what happened there? No, it, it was a campaign. Um, I ran against major Owens. I was really just experiencing what it was. I wanted a platform to talk about these issues. I was noticing uh, that what was happening on the street, when you start to arrest young people at that time, um, 14, 15 years old, and they couldn't spell their names. Uh, they couldn't uh, fill out a form. They couldn't answer some of the important issues. They couldn't spell the name of their street. You start to say, something is wrong here. And there was this common denominator of those we were coming in contact with that was having some real issues around education, which I learned later learned that that's the feeder of all the dysfunctionality we see in our city and country. It goes back to those early days of a child. You, we, we are producing broken children that are turning into broken adults that feeds the systems of dysfunctionality that we should have dealt with early on in the lives of parents and children. And I started to see that pattern and realized that many people who were in government was no longer speaking in a realistic way to what was happening on the ground. And that's why I said, let me use this as a platform in 1994 to talk about what we need to be doing in government. It was my first taste of politics that I said, this is something that I may be able to do one day. Let me get more experience. Let me learn more. And let me see how to move forward with this conversation. Yeah, because just like how we were talking about you know, the safety of different neighborhoods in the 80s. I think it was also very common to think of Manhattan as you better not go to a public school because A, you're not going to learn and B, you might get killed. So, so true, so true. So, so uh, imagine what they were saying, if they said about Manhattan, imagine what they were saying about Brownsville in East New York, which was the murder capital. <laughs> right, well, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong because I don't really know politically everything that was going on, but I feel like Giuliani... Or, you know, for maybe it wasn't him, maybe it was just a demographic thing, but I feel like he was pushing the problem out to the boroughs, like the Bronx and, and Brooklyn, Brownsville, all that. I feel like he was pushing it out of Manhattan. So Manhattan would start to become attractive for businessmen, businesses, real estate developers, and so on. 
And his assumption was, uh, let's just kick this problem down to the boroughs. I, I think it was a combination. And people have different approaches mm. to how they govern. I believe that uh, Mayor Giuliani, the former mayor, he saw that if we can turn Manhattan into this attractive, shiny apple, we could uh, draw people in and the gravitational pull of the tourists and, and business and turning around uh, would give an appearance that the city was stable. Because remember back then in 1991, uh, we were only getting in the city 29 million tourists with $10 billion in economic revenue. I talk about this all the time. And when you fast forward to 2018, we had 65 million tourists with $44 billion in economic re revenue. So the city becoming safe was really an economic stimulus package because businesses opened, we became attractive, tourists started to come here, and they started to say they want to be a part of this city. And I think his mindset was, you know, we will hide the dysfunctionality in our other boroughs, four other boroughs, let's just make Manhattan the shining example of what we can do and then we'll get to the other boroughs because this has always been a city where uh the outer boroughs the term that they use was where people live but the money was made in manhattan wall street uh other corporations uh, tourism people didn't really get on the train and buses and come to the outer boroughs they stayed for the most part empire state building uh, the Statue of Liberty, uh, Times Square, that was the real heart and soul of the city. And I think that's what he thought. Uh, but unfortunately for us, when we started to drive down crime in Manhattan, we all started to drive down crime across the city, and we saw the reflection of that uh, throughout the entire city and the other four boroughs as well. Would you say, like, I always try to feel, like, you know, with, with presidents, sometimes they have a foreign policy and... It's like like tr like the Truman Doctrine. He had a particular philosophy about you know whether you know communism was a sleep slippery slope. There's the Monroe Doctrine, whatever that was. This all uh, rulers or executives have their own kind of philosophy of governing, and that was you just described maybe what was a, a Giuliani Doctrine, where yes. if it was broken in Manhattan, then either punish it thoroughly or drive it out, <laughs> kick right, it out, right, and right. And not judging whether that is good or bad, like you mentioned, there's there was many good aspects of that. And Bloomberg, and and again, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm very naive on this. Bloomberg, if you had if he had a doctrine, a Bloomberg doctrine, it's almost like if something's not working, let's either eliminate it or merge it with something that's working, or throw money, you know, sell it, you know, or or throw money at it to make it work. Like there was some sort of you know very um, kind of. I don't know, autocratic way of fixing things, a business-like way of th fixing things. Exactly. And and remember, Bloomberg came from the, uh, you know, the stock universe, and he had a different thought. Many people in government were always in government. And so they existed in this echo chamber, and they really don't know the universe outside of government. And that is why Bloomberg was a great mayor. We really underestimate what he did. Bloomberg inherited a city after 9-11 with $4.6 billion in deficit. He went through one of the worst uh, economic crises uh, this city ever experienced. And 
Yet when he left, he turned over a $2.6 billion surplus. He left this city economically healthy. He built a entire college on Roosevelt Island that became a feeder system so that we could uh, not only just depend on Wall Street, but that we can de- uh, deal with the tech industry in this city. We've become the Silicon Val- Valley of the East because of some of the things he did. We had a three-year uh, a lifespan, increasing lifespan under Bloomberg. He started the, uh, removing the smoking in restaurants where smoking em- employees in restaurants were dealing with um, lung cancers and other diseases because of cigarettes. He looked at the school system, the 311 system. The problem we do in government is that we come in and we believe we have to discard who, were, who was there before us instead of doing like Apple and Steve Jobs. We need a 1.0, a 2.0, a 3.0 to continue those good things that were in place uh, before. Bill de Blasio brought some great ideas, but we didn't do enough to build on the ideas that Michael Bloomberg did, and that's what we need to start doing. Like what would you say is, was uh, or is de Blasio's, uh, a de Blasio doctrine? What's his philosophy of government, would you say? He, he really believed in the concept of a tale of two cities. He believed that there was a level of haves and have-nots. He believed, as he indicated, that there's a lot of money in the, in the country, but it's in the wrong hands. Uh, he believed in that um, the uh, the poorer parts of the city, uh, they're basically against the affluent parts. And I, I just feel that is wrong. Uh, and the numbers just, it doesn't bear, the numbers don't bear out that concept. And really people uh, don't know how to dig into the crevices of what is happening in our city. If you look at a Wall Street and its impact on this city, we can't survive without a Wall Street. Uh, Not only um, Wall Street is not a major contributor to our city and the economy, uh, but also if you look at something as simple as the nonprofits, and I talk with my staff about this, we have 35,000 nonprofits in the city, $33.6 billion in payroll tax, 600,000 employees. That's a major uh, economic engine in our city. Where do you think we get that money from? Joe the Messenger is not, depo- is not, <laughs> it's, it's not Wait, investing so in nonprofits. <laughs> I, always, I always wonder this when this type of argument comes up. Like, why don't people realize that? Like, money doesn't come out of thin air. Like, <laughs> right. somebody has earned it enough to bring it into an area. Right. Right. Like, like you look at like, um, you know, old towns that lost their manufacturing, like, you know, a hundred years ago, like Scranton, Pennsylvania, or, you know, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, all these former steel places, money left because they no longer were were providing a service or a product that outside cities needed. You need money from outside to come in. So wall street and, and, and now media and other industries have, have done that for New York city. Where do people think the money comes for uh, the surplus that Bloomberg created or these the 35,000 charities and nonprofits? Like, it has to come from so. Or look at all the hospitals, you know, it's partially funded by, you know, immense amounts of philanthropy. Yes, no, so true, so true. And when you start looking at the boards, when you start looking at uh, who are the donors, uh, when you start doing a profile, the same people that are being demonized are, in fact, some of the greatest contributors to fill the gap what government is leaving off. Uh, There's so many programs that affluent New Yorkers have made the determination that I've done well, now let me give give back to make my city operate better. 
We're just in a climate now where it's red meat to throw and point the finger and really demonize success in this country and in this city when it's a it's an untrue narrative. The real narrative is is that countless number of New Yorkers who who have done well. Now look at this the uh, the Gates and the Bloombergs who are committed to give away half their fortune. <laughs> the, you know, here are people who said that this country has been great for me. I want to give back. What they don't want to do, they don't want to, as smart businessmen, they don't want to throw their money away to the irresponsibility of government. I say this city and this country has become like my son used to be. He'll spend his money, then he'll put his hands in my pockets. That's what frustrates people. They want to know, how do we have $27 billion and we can't educate our children? How do we have a $92 billion budget and we can't deal with homeless? We can't deal with the NYCHA issue. That's what frustrates people, is that it's not only about dollars and cents. It's about common sense. We don't have common sense government where we can move a city like this forward. And that is what you find many of our affluent New Yorkers are frustrated with, that we don't have the right common sense in this city and in this country. So so some of these issues you brought up, and, I, I, you know, there are a couple of, there's always issues where a city can improve. And you've identified them so much in many of your speeches, but, you know, some common issues in New York City are homelessness, you know, housing, uh, issues with the mentally ill, issues with education, issues with healthcare. But just going to reel back a tiny second, 2000, I think it was 2006, you became a state senator. You finally decided, okay, I'm going to make the move. Was that, I'm just going to, Flat ass. Was that boring for you? After you were <laughs> you were a policeman, you were like, you know, f- f- fighting criminals like a superhero on the subway. You were making changes that were actually happening in the police force. And now you got to go up to Albany. And there, it seems like that just seems like a mess, the New York State legislature. <laughs> just a little I know. It just seems yeah, like a mess. No. You know what? There's a lot of rumors about how dysfunctional Albany is, and there's a lot of rumors about the big mistakes. Let me just say, it's not a rumor. It is. <laughs> 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 the place is a mess. Uh, getting better, evolving to a better place, uh, but there's just a lot of issues in the system. Too many people are elected and just want to be elected. And they get frustrated. They fall into that tar pit, and they just become uh, what Albany has been for so many years. And the Albany's of America, the Mm -hmm. state houses across America, you have the same problems. And so it was a different mindset, but it was a good moment for me because up until that time, I was every day dealing with crises that I, when I left the transit police, the NYPD merged, I became a lieutenant and a captain, that the, all the pressures were gone, and I realized that, listen, you're dealing with some, some pains that you have to find, and you need to go and do some internal healing. So it wasn't for that pause. I would not have started the journey of doing meditating to meditate and do other things to really start taking care of myself and deal with the stress uh, that came from those 22 years of not only fighting the bad guys in blue jeans, but fighting the bad guys in blue police uniforms. It was a nonstop battle for those 22 years. And do you feel overall, I mean, obviously you had a lot of victories during that time in terms of, I mean, the police off, the police force in New York City is a lot different now than it was in the 1980s. 
So, uh, but then you go to the state. First off, when you ran for uh, to be a, a state representative to, or a state senate, was this, were you state, state senate? senate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what was, you know, this was kind of your second campaign, but your first big campaign that you won and you were successful. What was that like? Like, how do you win your first campaign? Well, at that time, I was extremely well known from many years of uh, advocacy of standing up for New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of some of the stories. I had a, a young Polish gentleman who was killed in uh, Williamsburg at the time, and I went there with his family. He was killed only because he was Polish. And I went there with his family uh, and standing with the family. Uh, a young Chinese food um, delivery boy was robbed and assaulted bad. I, I joined the family and, and, and called for um, the persons to be held accountable. Um, a lot of things around um, racism and anti-Semitism. Um, I had a, a, a woman in Garrison Beach at the time. She saved up her money. She moved into a beautiful home in Garrison Beach. Uh, when she went to go pick up a second load of furniture, a group of residents there wanted no blacks on her block. They went into the, to the house and destroyed the house, painted swastikas stickers on the wall and just destroyed all of her stuff. And I went out there with my uh, team of African-American officers and we said, we're sleeping in this house tonight and we dare anyone to come and say you're going to damage this woman's house. Because remember, that brought me back to the days of my mother. And so people knew me for a per- as a person that was always there to stand up for people who were treated unfairly. That became um, the symbol of how people knew me. So when I ran for state senate, everyone that was in the race decided we're not going to run against this guy, and they got out of the race. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to have one uh, opponent where we we got, I believe, eighty seven percent of the vote, and I was elected to become the senator. So you don't you don't like majorities, really? Like, <laughs> you need eighty five percent or more to feel like um, okay, I did it, I got elected. Uh, and it was knocking on doors. It was knocking on doors. It was. I'll never get one door. I knocked on uh, this. It could not. We're talking fifteen years of nonstop advocacy. And I knocked on this one door, you know, introducing myself to voters. I'm running for state senate. Here's my platform. And this uh, elder came to the door, older woman came to the door, and she says, um, I said, hi, my name is Eric Ash. She said, I know who you are. She went inside the house. She said, hold on, dear. She went inside the house. She came back out. She had a jar full of coins. She said, "I, I, I watched you for years. I don't have a lot of money. But I knew one day you were going to be running for office, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be able to contribute to my your campaign. And every time I went grocery shopping, I put the coins in his jar, and I want to give this to you. Well, wow, that's a, where, where that's an incredible story. You should you should call her now. <laughs> hey, I'm running for mayor. <laughs> um, so I'll I'll skip the legislature stuff. That's whatever. But uh... some some good bills though. You know, we passed, um, we, 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 it's in, and it's really the story of my ju- journey. I always tell people, I am the original disruptor, you know, uh, getting arrested as a child and going into police and fighting for reforms, uh, marching with Randy Credico um, for the Rockefeller drug laws. I used to be a sergeant, do midnight tours, and when I got off duty, I would go to Rockefeller Plaza and march with advocates saying that we need to take away these draconian drug laws. I went to Albany, and I became the co-sponsor of the bill that removed the drug laws. Mm-hmm. I led the charge to stop pregnant uh, mothers from being handcuffed 
onto hospital beds. And we were able to pass legislation with Senator Velmanette Montgomery. They used to handcuff them to the bed while they was they were pregnant. Why? And they said that it was unsafe to not leave them um, handcuffed to the bed. And so we they used to keep the names of every child that was stopped in the city in a stop and frisk. Even if they did no crime at all, they were holding their, their names in a database. And I was able to co-sponsor a bill with Hakeem Jeffries and get my colleagues on the Republican and the Democrat side to get that bill done and signed, and we got the law passed. So there was a series of of things we did in Albany that really changed the life of people. And I continue to be a disruptor. Yeah, so so like, you know, this is almost like a training ground where you learn to build consensus from many different constituencies. And, you know, that's that's something really important for a mayor because you're dealing Without with all doubt. these boroughs, you're dealing with all these institutions. You know, I want to ask specifically about the Rockefeller laws because I didn't know that, that you were involved in that. And... Um, those seemed so bad and so, like you say, draconian. What's happening now with, like, like when, when, when the law you, when the bill you sponsored was passed, were people released who were previously imprisoned from those laws, or like, what's, what's the status of people who are in prison, like in jail for life on three strikes and you're out? Right, right. It's a combination. I'm not sure how the um, the judicial branch handled of uh, the release. Uh, you know, but there there were a large number of people who were released because their time was was served, and you know it was a period of time when you know many people were finally uh, seeing how just ridiculous some of these laws were. And what's which, what's interesting, Mayor Rockefeller, who's um, a a part of the Rockefeller lineage, is a very good friend of mine, and she was opposed to the laws as well. And during my time on the uh, Eastern District. Um, uh, uh, drug treatment. We talked about that together. We both served on the board together. And so the goal was to get those people with those very difficult uh, jail sentences. A lot of people don't even realize how bad the Rockefeller drugs laws were. And we were able to get it reversed and many people were able to see their prison time either reduced or released from jail. Hmm. Well, that's, that's, that's really good to hear. So, uh, before we get into your time as Brooklyn Borough President, uh, I want to ask you, so at one point you were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes while you're in the middle of all of this. You were, you were Brooklyn Borough President then, yes, right? Yes, yes. And uh, uh, that must have been a, a kind of different sort of wake-up call. Like here you've been on this one path since, essentially since you were 15, and now suddenly it brings you very much to, you know, who you are as a physical person as opposed to like what your role is in changing society like what 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 happened what was going on that's so true you know i remember i was out of the country and i had a pain in my stomach i thought it was colon cancer because it didn't move it stood in one place on the left hand side and i just lost a good friend to colon cancer and the symptoms just seemed uh, you know, so similar to what I heard he was going to. Was it an extreme pain? It was. It was. It, it was a noticeable discomfort that was present, mm. and you know, you know your body. You know, you know when you have a new discomfort that just didn't subside, and you know, men, you have to drag drag men to the hospital. You know, and so when I, I haven't, uh, I haven't had a checkup since I was fifteen. <laughs> what are you? Uh, what are you saying? <laughs> so, and so when I came back to the city, 
at the same time, I noticed that I was getting vision loss, and actually, I couldn't see the alarm clock. My left eye, my vision, um, just totally left me. And I went to the doctor that day, and he did a colonoscopy and endoscopy, and he checked my stomach and my colon. When I came out of sedation, he says, Eric, you have an ulcer, a small ulcer, but he said, your real problem is your diabetes. is out of control. You know, your A1C is in the high teens. And what was, what was fascinating, James, when he told me that, a part of me said, well, you knew it was coming, Eric. You know, your mother's diabetic. Uh, your family members are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Uh, you know, this is the route of what you live. This is your, you know, your heritage. is in your DNA. And, but it wasn't until... He said, listen, you know, you may go blind in about a year and you're going to lose. I had permanent nerve damage also. I had tingling in my hands and feet. And he says that, you know, you have permanent nerve damage. You could, you could lose some fingers and some toes. And, you know, you have some kidney, you're going to have some kidney issues. And so it was, once he said that, I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't sign up for this. Because in the African-American community, we sweeten diabetes. We say she has a little sugar. And to us... It's all part of the journey of life. You know, when you get to a certain age, you get heart disease, you get diabetes, you get arthritis. That is what we, we, we believe, you know. And so I decided that, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this stuff. <laughs> you know, I did. I, I did something I like to say extremely scientific. I went to Google and Googled reversing diabetes. Mm -hmm. And all this information came up. And what was key, I didn't put in... The term that's often used, living with diabetes, I put in reversing diabetes. And I was able to come in contact with some, with some great doctors, Dr. Esselton down in Ohio from the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Dr. Greger, who wrote the book How Not to Die, an amazing book, Dr. Bonnard. Um, and I reached out to, to them, Dr. Essie, and said, listen, you know, I told them who I was, and I want to see, is this true, what I'm reading in your book? And... What was fascinating is that the I went to five of the best doctors in the city who understood, endocrinologists, who told me, it's in your DNA, you eat too much carbs, uh, there's nothing you could do about it, it's not reversible, and I just refused to accept that. So I flew down to see Dr. Essie, and he told me what to do, and he says that it's in your diet. And I remember I was like, listen... Guy, I'm going blind. What, what are you talking about? What does that have to do with fried chicken? He was like, you know, he, he looked at me. I can remember like yesterday. I'm trying to talk with him, and he like gave me this look like, this is stupid. <laughs> Either you're going to follow it or you're not. So, I, I, Wait, can, so can I ask a question? Because you're going through this journey. What if you had asked a doctor, okay, my problem is my ability to metabolize sugar. Mm -hmm. What happens if I simply eat less sugar? What will happen? Then there's less work on the body mm -hmm. and less inflammation, less stress on the body, less energy required from the body. What would doctors say? And that's, that's, that's so good. So you hear different diets. You hear the, um, the low-carb diet. You hear the no-sugar diet, the uh, paleo diet. You hear different diets. And what they do, they may deal with a specific issue that your body may be experiencing at the time, but you are still eating foods that will impact the rest of your body. So what is the good of saying, okay, I, I, I lowered my insulin, but you know what? I'm having heart problems or I'm having mm -hmm. prostate problems or I have breast cancer. And so the biggest myth was, as I learned, 
is that diabetes has nothing to do with this whole concept about sugar. Mm. Yes, you shouldn't be eating a lot of sugar because it has so many harmful effects. Diabetes connected to saturated fat. It clogs your arteries, don't allow insulin to do the job that it's supposed Mm. to do. So if you're eating a diet on high in saturated fat, then you are actually feeding your diabetes without even knowing it. Mm. And it's not because your mother had diabetes. It's not that you share the same DNA. You share the same dinner. You both eat the same thing. <laughs> you know, mm. So you, that is why you're all having the same problem. So I, I came back to the city. Three weeks later, after changing my diet, going to a whole food, plant-based diet, uh, my vision clears up. Wow. Three so months, you knew you were in the right direction right away. Right, right. You know, nothing is better than than quick results. <laughs> you know that? You went on a plant-based diet. So I'm sure everyone asks you the obvious question, where do you get your protein? <laughs> I'm not going to ask that. I actually asked uh, the uh, people who worked with you earlier, and they uh, told me the answer. But where do you get good food? <laughs> oh, 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 it's, it's, all, it's all over the place. It's amazing. If there was ever a time to be a whole food plant-based eater, this is the time. The number of restaurants, recipes, food, it is just remarkable. When I started out this journey, my first month, my food tastes like garbage. You know, But I was just so determined. Right. After I saw the results, I said, Eric, weather through it. Then I went to next month, I said, you know what? Let's start Googling recipes, try different things, learn the power of spices, learning how to eat different meals. And then all of a sudden, I said, wow, this tastes good. Then I started looking at different restaurants in the city that, because I'm an oil-free eater. I don't use any oil at all also. Mm -hmm. And I started looking at different ways to cook, different ways to make my bread and sweet potatoes and mixing food and moving away from the tradition of how people talk about food is supposed to be eaten. Why? Who made the rule that oatmeal must be consumed only in the morning? Mm. You can eat oatmeal whenever you want. So I was able to break free of all the rules of eating and start to embrace food in a different way. I make a great ice cream uh, made out of frozen fruits. You know, there's so many different you foods. Should, you should write about this. I mean, you are writing about this, yes, right? I'm doing yes, a, I'm, I'm doing a book that's specifically targeting uh, the African-American community on, you know, how soul food is connected to slave food mm. and how we can eat healthier and live a healthier lifestyle. The connectivity of dementia and Alzheimer's is some of the great research that has shown. You know, we used to think our brain was not connected to our body and our poor health and nutrition is separate from, you know, the dementia that settles in our brain. When this is all connected, the fuel of the brain is the fuel you put in the body and that Fuel is the food. So you need to ask yourself, how are you fueling yourself? And it's not a comfortable conversation because food is more than just what's on the end of your fork. It's how we identify ourselves. You know, when I used to lose a basketball game or baseball game, my dad used to, you know, treat me to a nice treat, you know, maybe a hot dog or a steak or something. And we start to identify um, those feelings we have with the food that we have. So we have to redefine what we feel about food. And that's what we're doing in Brooklyn. We're doing some amazing stuff in Brooklyn. Started out with meatless Mondays in our school. Think about it. Processed meat is a type 1 carcinogen equal to cigarette smokes, smoking, according to the WHO. Yet we serve it to our babies in school. 
I mean, this is unbelievable that we're doing this. So we finally got the city of New York to stop purchasing processed meat, no longer serving it to our children in school. So this is what I, what I want to ask you about. So so now you're you're Brooklyn Borough President. You're in charge of, like we said earlier, the third largest city. But there's there's strings attached. You still have to go to New York City Central to get permission for some things, not for other things. You have budgets for some things and other things you have to draw upon New York City's budget. How a lot of your day is spent, uh, you know, you you stand with certain people, you listen to various constituents issues, but some part you're making executive decisions that then get implemented and Brooklyn and perhaps the city changes as a result. So like this is one of them, for instance, what, what do you, and again, uh, I'm naive. What do you do? You just say no more meats on Monday and then it happens <laughs> or like what happens? So you, you use the office of the borough president, the borough president, the office doesn't make the man or woman, the man or the woman makes the office. And when you look at uh, the bar president used to be one of the most powerful office in the city of New York. It used to be with the board of estimate. The borough presidents decided the borough of the city, negotiated the borough of the city. It was a very powerful position. Someone went to court, one man, one vote, because Staten Island is so much smaller than Brooklyn. The court ruled that you had to disband that system. It took away a lot of powers of the borough president. So on, on first uh, view, you feel that the borough president is just a symbolic place, but it's not. If you use the office correctly, and we have been successful in doing that by developing relationships with the existing mayor, with the city council, with our state legislators, we have been able to push through and then use the leverage of some of our funding. We get a lot of capital dollars to do internal brick and mortar building, building, and then we get discretionary money. And so, for example, I took some of my discretionary money. I'm a big believer in healing the mind of a child. So I took some of my discretionary money and I sent my teachers away to learn yoga and mindfulness and meditation so that they will start the school day with their children to show their children how to meditate. My goal is that every child in the city of New York should start their day with 20 minutes of meditation. A lot of these children are broken by the time they get in school. We're telling them, learn how to multiply and divide. And they're saying, who's going to help me from being divided? And so we use our discretionary money to put that program in place, and now it's growing. We use our discretionary money, um, $126 million in our capital money to put in schools to teach our children technology so they could be ready for some of the jobs of the future. So you're able to use your money in a smart way and your um, bully pulpit to push through initiatives of that you think are important. It was our aggressive behavior that got the city council and the mayor to now move away from processed meat. And look at what we're doing in Bellevue Hospital. I was just in Orlando, Florida, speaking uh, to uh, almost over a thousand healthcare professionals talking about the programs that we're doing at Bellevue Hospital. We have a lifestyle medicine clinic in Bellevue Hospital where people are coming in and they're learning how to do lifestyle changes to follow my path and getting off medicine or reversing diseases. We have 173 people who are signed up in the program, over 600 people on the waiting list, and we're going to come out with the pre preliminary report in January, and it's going to shock the medical community and this entire mm -hmm. country. But not only did, was I able to reverse my diabetes, my 80-year-old mother followed me 
two months after going to a whole food plant-based diet, diet, mom got off of her insulin. And I am so proud because mommy has six children. She loves them all, but she adores me. You know? <laughs> so it was my pleasure to watch someone that's significant to me. And other, other families need to know that. James, think about it. No one we know don't know someone that is not going through a chronic disease. All of us. If we take a moment, either either we're going through it personally or we're thinking about hospice for a family member, we're trying to figure out um, how we're going to have that next test, that next examination. Chronic diseases hijacks your life and it hijacks the life of your family member. A person who has Alzheimer's and their caregiver, they are several times more likely to have Alzheimer's also. Mm. The caregiver, people look at the person who's going through the experience, but the caregiver is traumatized. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate that none of the presidential candidates that are running for president right now are engaged in a conversation of how do we prevent diseases? How do we make Americans healthy, not just to, to have access to health care, but how do we stop having the need for them to repeatedly go into hospital? We spend 80 cents on a dollar nationally for uh, chronic diseases. 50% of Americans are experiencing chronic diseases. This is not sustainable. And what we're doing in Bellevue is going to show that there's another way to do it. We don't have to be held hostage by pharmaceutical companies that are destroying our families every day. Well, it reminds me of what you were just saying about how the man makes the office. You have all these experiences with reversing your diabetes, fighting, um, you know, various abuses in the law enforcement industry, building consensus on both sides of the aisle when you're in Albany. These are all critical skills, obviously, for getting some of these uh, unique programs in place. Let's say now you're mayor. What's What are some of the first two or three biggest changes you can envision actually happening that, that would be under your control that you could say, I want this to happen. So it most likely will happen. We, we have to change the paradigm. We have to shift the paradigm, not only in New York city, but across the entire globe. Here's what we do. We create crises. Then we govern the crises we created. That's what we do in New York. And that's what we do in America. We learn from policing. Police agencies in the city was dysfunctional. We took a dysfunctional agency and we made it function. And because of that, we're safer and we're a more productive city. That same mindset of real-time governing, you cannot go into the 21st century and continue to govern annually. We must move to a real-time governing mechanism. The reason cities are dysfunctional is it is because of the agencies. If your agency is dysfunctional, it doesn't matter how much money you put in the city. If the DOE, Department of Education, if they're not functioning to educate our children and they're feeding the healthcare crisis, then no matter how much money you put in, it's going to be dysfunctional. Same with homeless services. There's a reason we continue to see people who are homeless on the street and the increase, lying on our trains, lying on the street, uh, mental health issues, attacking people with pipes and killing um, four people. There's a reason we're seeing all of this because the agencies are not fulfilling their obligation and responsibility. I know how to turn around agencies. 
We are, this city is a four-cylinder vehicle operating on three cylinders, and we have become accustomed to operating on three cylinders. We have to get it running on four cylinders again. We do that by bridging technology, artificial intelligence, bringing in our great tech industries, the Google, the Microsoft, the Dells, bring them into how do you run a city correctly, and then we start governing in real time. Yeah, so it's almost like uh, you have one program in place in Brooklyn where, if I, if I, I'll, I'll probably mess up my description of this, but you're measuring essentially the temperature in the waiting rooms in you know the official offices where people are are waiting for help or decisions or or they're online for something, and you could see, like you say, in real time where there's congestion in terms of you know, helping the people, helping the constituents, which, which offices probably need more employees, which processes are probably broken down. So that's why everyone's waiting around. And that kind of approach, uh, seems to work. And one of the programs we're doing is the heat seek program. Mm -hmm. So small device, no larger than this fits into an apartment or building or apartment building and engages the heat in the apartment. We, every year, unscrupulous landlords play this heating game where they turn down the heat, then the inspectors come out, they turn it up, then once the inspector leaves, they turn it down. This device can be monitored remotely and it shows you the heating pattern. So if a tenant has to go to court and show that there's a history of not uh, providing the right amount of heat, because the quality of life is important. You're able to show the documentation of that. We, we were able to get the housing judges. They came in, they saw it, they liked it. That should be in every apartment where you have a history of heating complaints. We're slow to move that, to roll that out. Right, and this, I, I would say this doctrine of, you know, data-oriented solutions combined with the 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 real-time needs of the constituents, this, this, is a direction that, you know, at least in New York City, we haven't seen before. And now uh, everybody's telling me I've got to be respectful (laughs) of your time, so I want to be. But when's your book coming out? Because this is only part one. We're going to have a part two. Do you promise we'll have a part two? Yes, yes, When's your book coming out? We're in the process of writing it now. Uh, I believe it's going to be out sometime in the middle of next year. You know, so we're in the process of doing it so now. That gives us a long time before yeah, the election. Right, right, so right. We're, we're excited about it. Because I'm only beginning now my <laughs> mayoral <laughs> questions. I want to get out of this how to run a city. So so this will, we'll count this as part one. We learned all about you. We're going to do part two, which is when about, you know, uh, health care, your journey through it, and and more on uh, the, the, the politics of what's going on in the mayor's race and in Brooklyn and, and, and so on. And, uh, I'm looking forward to part two of this discussion. And as we talked about before the podcast, I'm looking forward to writing a speech for you. My first <laughs> political speech that I'll write. So thanks very much, Eric. Thank you. Really enjoy you. Yeah. Same. <laughs> Hang on, don't go yet. I want to remind you, I want you to have a copy of what I think is one of my best books that I've ever written, Reinvent Yourself. This book was so important to me because I've had to reinvent my career from scratch so many times that I learned all the techniques that really helped me to reinvent myself, to master a new area of life, to thrive. All you have to do is go to www.reinventbook.net 
That's www.reinventbook.net. I'm excited about what this book can do for you, and you should be as well. The next step, claim your copy before they're gone. Just go to www.reinventbook.net to learn more. That's www.reinventbook.net.